Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke 22. Uh, We will begin reading in just a moment in verse 47. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22, and we're going to read this morning verses 47 through uh, 65. Probably most of us have said something like this, or at least experienced this phenomenon upon watching a movie or a television show, uh, may remark of a character or an actor, or even maybe in the realm of music, a, a singer, that we would say they stole the show. That, that is, that uh, the one that you would have thought of as the, the focus, the, the star of the show was upstaged by a uh, supporting uh, player in uh, that particular movie or or show or or concert. I can remember uh, in elementary school, uh, there were young ladies that uh, I was in school with uh, that that actually thought that Robin upstaged the real Batman in that epic 1960s television show uh, entitled Batman. And so there's no way that Robin could ever upstage the real Batman. Sometimes we make the same mistake as we read our Bibles. That is, we look at characters scattered throughout the Bible and we make their stories the main things. We we walk away from David's encounter with Goliath and say, we want to be a David. We want to take up our five smooth stones of courage and peace and power and hope and faith and slay our giants. When the point of David's story and the point of everyone in the Bible's story is to highlight the great reality that they need a Savior. And that Savior's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we enter into our text this morning, there are some things, there are some warnings that I want you to to hear from the life of Judas and the life of the Apostle Peter. But please be sure to understand that they are indeed only the supporting actors, that their, their role is to be the very instruments by which the narrative of the gospel, that is the historical accomplishment of placing our Savior on the cross at Calvary, is carried out. And so we'll say some things that I think are important in relationship to what they did or what they didn't do. But what they did or what they didn't do is the most pointed of all reminders that not only did they need a Savior, But it's a reminder what? That I need a Savior. That we all need a Savior. And what they did placed our Savior on the cross at Calvary for our salvation. And so let's read what is the final episode in the narrative that precedes the beginning of the trials of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Those who were around him saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power 
of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are, the, are also one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is that that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Pray with me. Father, once again we thank you for your word, for the testimony of your accomplishment. You have done that which we could not. You have atoned for our sins. And so Lord, we Rejoice in that. We thank you for that. May we communicate uh, that truth with great clarity, with great accuracy, even great simplicity for the good of our very souls and for your own glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can remember... We really began a section of Luke's gospel uh, at Easter and have been moving forward from that time that Jesus entered Jerusalem on that final week, what we often refer to as the triumphal entry, and we have traced his path through the, the multiple controversies and discussions and indictments uh, that occurred there in the temple precincts through the course of that week, all of those things uh, continuing to fan into flame uh, the hatred uh, that those in Jerusalem, namely the religious leaders, had against Jesus uh, Christ. And so we have moved uh, through those controversies into that final night uh, in that upper room when he gathered uh, for that final Passover that would be repurposed into what we call the, the Lord's Supper, our communion uh, celebration. And having completed uh, that final meal with those disciples, he goes out, uh, to the Mount of Olives, to that uh, garden called Gethsemane, uh, and he is engaged in prayer, and as he is uh, completing uh, that agonizing time of, of prayer, we are told that the one who would betray him has now reappeared and come to do uh, that which uh, he has been desirous of doing and that which has been ordained that he would do. So let's begin there in verse 47 with uh, the betrayal uh, by the uh, betrayer. We're told that he is bringing this crowd. They, they are angry. Uh, they, have, they have had enough of this uh, rabbi uh, from Galilee. Uh, they've had enough of his truth, his light exposing their hypocrisy, uh, their error, their perversion of that which God gave as a good gift by which men would be saved. Uh, they have actually done more to do harm for men in terms of their salvation than they have done in bringing men uh, to that uh, salvation. And so he brings this uh, mob. They are incited. Uh, they have uh, agreed to conspire uh, with this one uh, Judas and so we're told that the way that they shall recognize uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the betrayer uh, shall place uh, a kiss upon uh, the lips of Jesus Christ that's not an unusual thing that would have been a normative uh, greeting in that 
world, but yet it is also uh, a, a symbol of friendship, of fellowship, of affection, uh, of love. And so uh, he takes and distorts and perverts the very uh, symbol of, of that which is uh, good and uses it to bring about the greatest evil that has been ever brought upon anyone on the face of the earth. But we also know that through that great evil, namely the betrayal unto the cross, that God's ultimate purpose of accomplishing the greatest good was set into motion. That is, the Son would be placed on the cross for our redemption. But I want to take a minute and I want to pause and I want to talk about this, this man, uh, Judas, and that, that what he, the, while what he did was uh, despicable, and you hear me say this all the time, and uh, I used it several times this week, Always remember, people do what they want to do. And the problem is what you want to do. Okay? And so Judas did what was consistent with his own sinful, evil, unregenerate character. And so he becomes the, the prime example of what it is to be an apostate. Now what do I mean? That's kind of a big fancy word. You don't hear it. Uh, much, in fact, uh, the, the the concept comes forward and translated from the Old Testament. It's where we get the term of being backslidden. Okay, the Hebrew is often translated into English as backslidden, but technically, apostasy is a sin that is only possible for those who are ultimately unregenerate. That is, an, the apostasy is the ultimate. Denial of truth unto death. So, in a technical sense, the believer can never become an apostate. Okay? Now, they can deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They can fall into error, whether it's doctrinal error or moral error. They can certainly do that. But they can never ultimately apostatize. And God has uh, several uh, fences uh, in, in that will stop us from going off of the cliff of apostasy. We have the truth of the Word of God. We have the very witness of the Spirit. And I say this as a warning, if those two things aren't enough, never put God in a position where He determines that Word and Spirit are inadequate and insufficient to provoke repentance. Because if He chooses to use providential means, that will never be a pleasant journey for the child of God. Okay? And so, but apostasy is a sin of the unregenerate. So Judas had never been born again, therefore he never truly repented. He never truly uh, believed uh, the gospel. And so even though this man spent three years with the one who was truth, love, wisdom, mercy, all of these things and more, incarnate, lived out perfectly. I mean, sometimes we kind of are able to sketch around the edges of what truth and love and wisdom and mercy and all these great things are. But Jesus Christ perfectly in full 3D, fully orbed color lived out these things perfectly. And Judas was a witness to these things and more. He saw Jesus demonstrate power and authority over nature as He calmed the storm and actually walked upon those waves. He saw Jesus triumph over disease as He healed the sick. He, he saw Jesus triumph over deprivation as He fed the hungry. He saw Jesus announce His authority over sin by actually forgiving sin. He saw Jesus pronounce and demonstrate His authority over death itself by raising the dead. He saw Jesus demonstrate authority and power over the evil realm, even over demons themselves. He saw as the penetrating light of ultimate truth exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And yet, he never embraced. He never could apprehend, comprehend that perfect truth. Maybe in some sense, and this is really scary, maybe he himself 
experienced something of the power of God as he went out with the 12 and the 72 and he preached that gospel and maybe even saw the power of God through the proclamation of the truth bring people to genuine repentance and genuine faith. Maybe he even demonstrated some type of authority himself as given through God. Maybe he experienced all of those things, yet in the end he never gained saving closure with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the consummate apostate because he saw the perfection of truth and power, and yet he rejected it. John kind of explains the phenomenon. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the little epistle at the back of your Bibles, 1 John. We've gone here several times over the years, but I think it is worth noting, and again, as, as what I think is a very timely warning to us. In 1 John chapter 2, not the Gospel of John, the epistle of 1 John, almost back to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18, John wrote, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist, or that Antichrist, is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it's the last hour. They, speaking of the plural, Antichrist, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What am I saying? The spirit of apostasy is the spirit of Antichrist, and it seems to arise, at least normatively, within the visible church. That is, that there are people that are exposed to the truth, maybe repeatedly, maybe even at some point saying that they believe that truth. But they prove by their testimonies, they prove by their actions, that ultimately they were not of the truth. There as the writer of Hebrews would write in chapter 6, they taste that goodness of God and experience the powers of the coming age and then they fall away. And having watched this for 50 years now, whether the writer means it in some practical way or some technical, specific, scientifically true way, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Go talk to your friend, your family member, that's a church dropout and see how hard it is to win them back. At least at a practical level, it is impossible. And so the apostate sees and they hear at some level, but at the end of the day they do not receive. Why do they do not receive? Well, it goes back to what we often emphasize appropriately so, that you must be born again. If you are going to endure to the end, there is an essential way you must begin that is intrinsic to faith and repentance, that is necessary to faith and repentance. You must be born again. Now, I'll say this, and as I often preface these things, this is why nobody likes me very much. Okay, But in the evangelical world, characterized by life in the Southern Baptist Convention that I have known for my entire life, it's not a new thing, we have built the better mousetrap. Google that, you'll figure out what I'm talking about. We have built the best mousetrap possible. We, we have erected an architectural marvel. We have created the ultimate in apostate creating machinery. In that we bring people in and we expose them to the truth at some level. And then we pronounce that because they did this and maybe they stopped doing that, well, you're now saved and you don't have to worry about it. No, mate, you can't ever lose that salvation and we send them out and be, believe me, they leave. They go out. And they demonstrate 
Many times by how they live, many times by what they say, many times by both. That they never were really of us. I've said this many times. We have perfected the art in the modern evangelical church. I made a remark at dinner Friday night. During the course of the summer, I preached the two most daunting and sobering sermons that I preach in any calendar year. It is the gospel presentation in VBS and the gospel presentation at children's camp. And the desire, first and foremost, is to clearly present Jesus Christ with no compromise. Okay? And at the same time, present Him in a way that is simple enough, not simplistic, but simple enough that they may understand. I'm going to err on the side of accuracy, of faithfulness, and trust God to bring it to their heart at the appropriate time. It kind of reminded me back when I coached uh, Katie uh, in soccer, and I hope she doesn't have flashbacks and start you know, drooling or something for all the things that I did uh, back in those days. But I noticed very quickly, and these were five, six, seven-year-old little girls, that if I stood kind of perpendicular to their line and I rolled the ball across, that they could run to where the ball was, but they couldn't mentally project where that ball was going and intercept it to kick it because their brains had not been formed enough. I found the same thing with Zach, trying to teach him how to hit a baseball. When I lobbed it in with an arch, which you think is the way to, you know, for a young guy to hit the ball, he couldn't track the arch. But if I zipped it in on a line, he could hit it, because his brain could handle that. And so again, you just have to wait till their brains develop enough to be able to do these things. And there's some sense where in preaching the gospel and why it's such a blessing to have our children in here. No, they may not get everything, but we're, a, we're sowing the seeds and we're awaiting the time that God deems it appropriate to give them the understanding. And whether you're six years old or 60 years old, it still has to be God who gives you the eyes to see and the ears to hear the truth to embrace it to salvation. And so, we're humbled and we're reminded Totally. At every age, we are dependent upon God to take His truth and make it effective in the lives of those who hear. And so, in our day, because of what we see in the culture, as I say, there used to be cultural capital for staying in the church. But now there is no cultural capital or little cultural capital. Okay? I mean, it's better to, to get out there and say, well, those people in the church, they're racist. They're, they're, they're not with the program. They, they're harmful to, to homosexuality and all of this type of stuff. And we need to do something to get rid of the, those kind of people. And what we're going to see is more and more people do what? As the pressure from the culture increases upon the church, it will become very, very clear that at one time they were among us but they really weren't of us. Now, there are multiple ways that we can apostatize. We can engage in moral apostasy. We can show up every Sunday. You can, you can even come on Wednesday night and be a real Christian, okay? And go out and live like a godless pagan through the course of the week. It happens all the time. Okay, And so you can be a moral apostate. In other words, you'd say, you'd say oh, Brother Tim has a great sermon, or you know, talk about you know, some great truth, say, oh, I agree, I, yeah, you got them, go get them, all that, and still be morally an apostate. You can be a, what I call a spatial apostate. That's spelled with a T, not a C. Okay? What do I mean? You leave the building. You, you go. You, you disappear. And, and again, so many times, well, I, I believe just like you do. I, I, I hold everything true that you do. I, I still love Jesus. But you're not being cared for. You're not 
participating in the regular means of grace by which you grow and you mature and you become uh, stable and steadfast in which you, you're, you're confronted, in which you... Sometimes you have to look at the Judases and the Apostle Peters and wonder, where do I fit into this picture? And so there's moral, there's spatial, there's spiritual, and in the sense you just you don't have the, the deep abiding love for Christ anymore. Just kind of kind of lukewarm. You can, you can become doctrinally apostate. You no longer believe the truth. I met a, a guy several years ago. And he has fallen under some of the most popular false teachers in the world today. And he said, now Jesus is my Savior, but he's not uniquely the Son of God. Let me tell you something. If you do not confess that Jesus Christ is uniquely the Son of God, you're not saved. Okay? You're, 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 that is a denial of the one who has the ability to save. And, and I believe it was Joe when he got up here last week that, that, that pointed out, you know, I talked about the, 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 the finite number of sins and the, and the infinite offense, and he, he nailed it. That, that it took the infinite God to bear the weight of his wrath for our sin in our place. It took God and Jesus Christ must be uniquely God, eternal and infinite and able to save. And He does save. And so, there's doctrinal apostasy. And then ultimately there's absolute and confessional apostasy, maybe related to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin unto death, the unpardonable sin. All of these types of things where people just say, no, I no longer believe that. We saw a very well-known evangelical in the last three or four years go this route. A guy named Josh Harris wrote a lot of books, very well known, and completely walked away. I no longer believe these things anymore. And so all of these things are possible. And we need to be aware. We need to be on the alert for those that were once among us. But by the way they live, by what they say, are they really, truly one of us? Were they ultimately unbelieving? And the activity of the apostates is always to deceive, it's always to betray, it's always to infiltrate the church for the sake of distorting and perverting and dragging others into their hell. Let me read something to you from the book of Hebrews. You don't have to turn there. The writer of Hebrews has a lot to say. I already quoted from Hebrews 6. This is from Hebrews 3. And this is a warning that I think we all should always take to heart. Take care, brothers. Okay, who's he talking to? He's talking at least to those who think of themselves as brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm. To the end, as it said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? The Apostle Paul picks up on the same theme in 1 Corinthians 10. They saw great stuff. They heard great truth. But they did not gain what they pursued. And that warning is still pertinent to each and every one of us today. Take care. And lest we prove, demonstrate that in actuality we have that unbelieving heart. So that's Judas the apostate. We see him. Let me let's move forward through the text now. Back to verse 47, verse 48. Verse 48. Jesus responds to the approach and inquires of Judas, is this the way you're going to uh, betray me? The disciples uh, being the 
kind of the muddle-headed guys that they were. All right, you know, you told us to bring a sword. We've got a sword. We're ready. Let's go. And, and so uh, we're told that uh, one attacks the servant of the high priest uh, with the sword. We know John tells us that's actually the Apostle Peter. No surprise there. And so uh, he, he lops off the guy's ear. Malchus, the high priest's servant, Jesus stops it. Before it even gets started. Hey, guys. No. This is not the way the victory is going to be won. Unless you've got any misunderstanding about what I said just a little bit ago. This is the way this battle is, not, is going to be fought. It's going to be fought with the proclamation of the truth. Not the wielding of an actual physical sword. And so Jesus proves by healing Malchus' ear, I'm not, I'm not a threat, as you would think, of threats. And then he indicts them. Again, <laughs> the truth just cannot help but sting a little, can it? You know, you know we, were, we were laughing this morning. Most of you kind of giggled about my little cut last week. and We were talking about what I was actually looking for is what's called a stipic pen. Us old guys remember seeing them on the little things in the barber shop, and and uh, the the bad thing about a stipic pen, it'll work, but by George, it'll burn the fire out of you. I am, t- it'll light you up. That's what the truth is. It works. It'll never return void. But in the short term, it may light you up. And Jesus lit them up right there one more time. Am I a common criminal? I have been sitting here wide open. You don't have to sneak around in the dark of the night to come and get me. I was right where you knew I would be. But yet, as evil is often done, it was done with the cover of darkness. And they forgot what? That even in the dark, God sees all. Let's move forward into verse 54. From the betrayer and the betrayal to the denial and the denier. In verse 54, we're told that Jesus is seized. Other Gospels kind of flesh it out a bit. He is seized and He is taken and He leaves alone, reminding us that He is the one and the only one that will go uh, through the trials and go to the cross for our salvation. No one could go with Him. No one could help Him. There was no one that could help Him. And so He goes. And again, He admonishes, you let these others go, being the good shepherd until the very end. Even as as He is uh, uh, facing the threat to His very life, He is what? interceding for those entrusted to his care is that not a good reminder for us even at the greatest crisis that he experienced in the human realm he's interceding for those in his care are you not thankful that we have that perfect interceder let me tell you something many times you come to me and you tell me of the issues of your life and i appreciate that and so many times There's really nothing I can do, and I'll say, I will pray for you, which is the most I can do. But as much as I would petition and intercede for you, are you not glad you have one greater than me that intercedes for you? And for that, we do give thanks. And so, Peter follows the crowd. He, he follows uh, the mob at, at, a, at a distance. And at, at, the, at the servant girl's accusation, he engages in that first uh, denial. And then upon the, the second accusation, he descends into that second denial there in verse 58. And then in verse 59, that third predicted denial. And upon that third denial, the alarm goes off. The rooster crowed. I mean, I think Heath in his prayer mentioned something that we are thankful for a sovereign God. I'm, I'm thankful for a sovereign God. And even though sometimes He ordains a difficult path, even for His children. But I am thankful 
That there's a meaning and a purpose to every difficult path. And yes, that sovereign God ordains for a crow or a, a rooster to crow at the appointed time. And that was a clarion message to the Apostle Peter of the truthfulness of his Lord and the power of his Lord. And he meets the very gaze of his Lord. And he is moved to weep bitterly over his failure. Again, knowing indeed that this is just what he said wouldn't happen when he said, No, Lord! How do you define insanity? By saying, No, Lord! That is the height of foolishness and insanity. Jesus told him what he would do. And he said, No, not me. I know you created all things. I know you're sovereign over all. But let me tell you something. You don't know me. And so, Peter lapsed that final time. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on the gospel, kind of outlines why Peter failed. And I think these are instructional to us. First of all, proud self-reliance. Self-dependence. Always remember Jesus' words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I've told you this before. I have had those days where I very seriously wanted to pull the covers over my head and stay there and not come out. And I recognize even the simplest task of getting out a bed. I am dependent upon my Lord. I am dependent upon my Lord for my very sanity. I'm dependent upon my Lord for me to be able to put one foot in front of the other. Much less to do the things that are of that of eternal value. Upon Him, we are ultimately dependent. So let me tell you, apart from His grace, apart from being in, in His hand and under His authority and protected by His power, we would all apostatize and we would all deny in a heartbeat. And so, self-confidence, self-reliance, again, in a vein similar to Judas, how could one spend three years in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and in that crisis collapse? In such a horrible way. Second area, a little cocky, we would say. Second thing, slothfulness or presumptuousness. Maybe even, well, in this case, wouldn't be busy neglect. Jesus admonished them while you pray while I go a little further into the garden. What did they do? They fell asleep. They neglected that which Jesus had commanded and which God had ordained for their strength. How many times this past week? Let's get dirty and nasty about it. How many times have we neglected that which God has ordained for our strength to encourage us in this discouraging world? Again, when Jesus admonished prayer, they chose sleep. And so they were slothful. And then we find Peter, it's called, Ryle calls it vacillating or whimsical indecision. He denies the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he pulls the sword and is ready to fight. And then he runs. And then he comes back at a distance to kind of peek at what's going on. Just kind of, okay, you know, it's kind of like watching a, a house burn or something like that, I guess. But he comes back to, to, get a, to get a look. And then he sits down. He, he, he takes company with the sinners. Isn't there a a psalm that warns us about the company of sinners. And he sits down with them. Now by denying the Lord Jesus, what did he want? He wanted the approval. He wanted to avoid the condemnation of the sinners. And so we see kind of a four-step descent toward 
this denial. Ultimately, he failed to deny himself. He counted his life. He counted his life as more valuable than faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, let me, I want to read a, a fairly lengthy, because I thought this was, was really good. And this is also from J.C. Ryle's expository uh, thoughts from the book of Luke. He wrote, We should learn for another thing from these verses that it's much easier to fight a little for Christ, it's much easier to pull the sword in, in our excitement, than to endure hardship and go to prison and death for His sake. We read that when our Lord's enemies drew near to capture Him, one of His disciples struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Yet the zeal of that disciple was very short-lived. His courage soon died away. The fear of man overcame him. By and by, when, when our Lord was led away as a prisoner, He was led away alone. The disciple who was re so ready to fight and smite with the sword had actually forsaken his master and fled. The lesson before us is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is much harder than to stir about and take part in the battle. Crusaders will also always be found more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far more rare and precious than the active graces. Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives. From excitement, from emulation, from a party spirit, from love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from but any but one motive. The motive is the grace of God. We shall do well to remember these things in forming our estimate of the comparative grace of professing Christians. We greatly err if we suppose that those who do public work and preach and speak and write and fill the eyes of the church are those who are most honorable in God's sight. Such men are often far less esteemed by Him than some poor unknown believer who has been lying for years on his back, enduring pain without a murmur. How many of those do we have in our church? They have suffered faithfully and silently as the most profound demonstration of grace and perseverance. And so, we see that, that it's not always those that are in the limelight. It may be those that are behind the scenes. And they're suffering. And they're serving. And they're proving their faithfulness over and over and over. There's a mysterious line, I guess. I got into this conversation this week. Again, human responsibility, God's sovereignty. And I, don't, I don't know exactly where the interface is. My sin, my stupidity, God's sovereignty, working all things for, my, for our good, for my good, working all things toward its appointed end. All of these things, Peter was entirely responsible and Judas was entirely responsible. The distinctive that is the difference is what? The Apostle Peter was born again. His initial and true faith and repentance was born witness to by responsive faith and repentance. That is, when he sinned, he was quick to repent and trust that Christ was indeed sufficient to save and forgive. And then there was this ongoing, the balance of his life was what? The testimony of faith and repentance. It was the testimony that Christ indeed, indeed, as he demonstrated in John 21, in Peter's case, a restoration that was full and complete. The, the good news in Peter's life, is that for the believer, our lapse, our failure, is not permanent. That grace, the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ, and remember this because we forget it sometimes, 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, His gospel is sufficient to forgive even us stinking Christians. It really is. And we need to extend that to others and we need to remember it for ourselves. Let's look at the final segment this morning. The brutalization by the brutalizers. And you see, again, we get what's going on. It's graphic enough to, to understand what's going on here. It's not like a modern Hollywood movie where blood spills everywhere and you know the brutalization gets glorified. But very terse, but we know Jesus is being brutalized. And let me say this. It is a picture of how every single one of us would treat the Lord Jesus Christ. It is how the world would treat the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how the world would treat us as those who are the ones who proclaim His truth. They would treat us exactly the same way, if not restrained by His grace. Okay? This is a picture of what the darkness will do to the light. It is what evil will do to good. And so, we're told in verse 63, they mock Him. If there's anything that kind of gets me, you know, it's kind of being mocked or ridiculed, as I've told you, in playing ball with my kids, basketball, whatever, and, you know, they might get a little, ah, Dad, we're shooting your eyes out, aren't you? Well, I can't take it. I mean, I'm going to start drilling them then. I, I, because I have the power. I did. I don't now. But, but back then, I had the power to beat them. I wasn't going to let them mock me. And our Lord Jesus Christ, who could have crushed them into the finest power, powder, endured their mocking for the sake of going to the cross. And so they beat Him. They ridiculed Him. They blasphemed Him. Again, the truly unique Son of God endured these taunts, these verbal assaults, and these physical assaults for the sake of our salvation. Now let me back up and just I want to give you a couple of warnings. You've heard these before. I think last week from 1 Corinthians 10-12, I kept saying what? Take heed lest you fall. Oh, I'd never! Yeah, you would. If not for the sustaining grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, take heed lest you fall. Second thing, this goes back a few weeks, you don't know what is genuine until it's tested. If I pulled out a handful of gems, a handful of currency, a gold coin, I might could convince you that it was genuine. But what? Upon further examination, upon professional scrutiny, you could prove that they were what? Ingenuine. And so we don't know. We say, oh, I would never. Just like Peter, don't, right? Take heed lest you fall. Examine yourself daily to see if you're of the faith. You know, when we looked at the passage related to denying yourself and taking up that cross, again, we emphasize this. We don't know what is genuine until it's tested. And you say, well, you know, until the soldiers come, until these more revolutionaries come and they pick it, we don't. Let, let me back up. And I, I was so impressed in talking to one of our young men this morning as he described what he's doing to pour his life and in, into others. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with the pastor I went to Africa with. And we were talking about David Platt's book, Radical. And he said, it's fine, but it fails to take note of the normal. Of the dad that's living faithfully before his family. The husband that is leading his home. Of the guy that goes to work every Monday through Friday and lives out the great truth of the gospel, of normal Christianity. And I, I ran across this uh, providentially this week in a novel that I'm reading, an allusion to the classic Western movie, The Magnificent Seven. 
in its 1960 form, not this cheap stuff that came out a few years ago. But in there, you know the story. These seven gunslingers come in to save the town. And a village boy comes up to the Charles Bronson character. Pretty bold guy approaching Charles Bronson, actually. His name is O'Reilly in the film. And the boy says to Charles Bronson, We're ashamed to live here. Our fathers are cowards. To which the gunslinger Charles Bronson responds, Don't you ever say that again about your fathers. Because they are not cowards. You think I am brave because I carry a gun. Well, your fathers are much braver because they carry responsibility for you, your brothers, your sisters, and your mothers. And this responsibility is like a big rock that weighs a ton. It bends and it twists them until it finally it buries them under the ground. And there's nobody that says they have to do this. They do it because they love you and because they want to. And I have never had this kind of courage, running a farm, working like a mule every day with no guarantee anything will ever come of it. This is bravery. Living before your family, living before your church, living before your community, before you can say, I would die for the Lord Jesus Christ, live for Him right here, right now, in this place. That's bravery. That's faithfulness. That is endurance. That's why, back in character, that's why I never even started anything like that. That's why I never will. Yeah. We don't have to take the sword and lop off anybody's ear. We just got to maintain the confession. We got to maintain our faithfulness just in the daily rigors of life, just in living before those that God places within our circle of authority, living before them, speaking and living the truth. Final thing. At the end of the day, we, we never do it perfectly, do we? At the end of the day, we're flawed, we fail, we find our witness to be imperfect. And that's why I'm thankful that Jesus endured the betrayal. He endured the denial. He endured the brutalization to go to the cross. And He succeeded where I have failed and where the Apostle Peter failed and where so many others have failed. He succeeded for our salvation. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your truth, for Its power. We pray that You would apply it. Lord, I have no ability to apply Your truth to anyone's life. How I would pray. How I would pray that You would work what has been said today. Lord, it's not our truth. It's not my truth. Let us always remember, it is your truth, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.